Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time it's episode 177, and we're going to talk about how you know when it's time to go. Are you ready for van life? How do you know? And it might not be what you think. We're also going to talk about electric kettles and why a 12-volt electric kettle might not be the best idea. We're going to have some stories about some experiences in the disaster zone, and we're going to visit a place that makes American-made cars that are Subarus. (laughs) Hello, everyone. Welcome back. We are here now for episode 177, and there has been some news that I will share with you through the course of this episode. But very first, we have to thank Kent just in Chicago, Linus and Repro for sponsoring this episode. Happy to report that this podcast will have no ads. Thanks to the generosity of those folks, and I really appreciate it. Sorry, YouTube folks. We're still stuck with the YouTube ads because that's how it is. So, uh, something happened. <laughs> something I'm not very happy about. Yesterday, I got a message from Celebrity Cruises, and they have canceled all Antarctica trips for 2025, which is when I was planning on taking a group down to Antarctica. They're gone. They're canceled. They're moving the ship from South America entirely and doing cruises from Port Canaveral, Florida to the Bahamas, which um, is just the most basic cruise in the world. Like, it's kind of like they took a bucket list cruise and turned it into a just a generic whatever cruise. And I don't know why they did this. Um, I, I do know why they did this. Somehow it makes them more money. <laughs> That's why they did this. But uh, there's there's trouble in Argentina, and their currency is in terrible shape, and maybe that had something to do with it. I don't know. But all I know is that no Antarctica. So I either have to cancel the Antarctica trip or find a new way to do it. That's not so easy, so stay tuned for that. But this got me thinking of um, how lucky I was to go to Antarctica last year. And, you know, it it costs a lot of money to go to Antarctica. I went a fairly affordable way. The trip I am planning or was planning was even more affordable. But for most people, you know, you're talking at least $10,000 a person, if not 20, just to go to Antarctica. So this is a major thing. And I thought about the decision I made to go and A lot of that decision was based on a simple thing that I think applies to van life in a big way, and that is, I could. (laughs) I always wanted to go to Antarctica ever since I was a kid, and I suddenly had the things I needed to do it. I had the time, I was healthy enough, and I had the money. It was in my travel fund, and it was just enough to get me there. I I had to totally wipe out my travel fund, but no, that's okay. That's what it's for. And I thought, you know, there's a lot of people who listen to this show and who are browsing YouTube for van life videos and TikTok or whatever they're using these days, whatever those kids are using these days, wondering, wishing, trying to figure out when they can go. And the answer is, when you can (laughs) Oh, I'm so helpful, aren't I? Now, you can search YouTube and find lists of everything. Like, you need to have a vehicle, and it has to be in this condition, and you need to have running water and a way to cook and heat, and you need to have money in reserves, and you'll have these lists of, here's everything you need, so you know when you're ready to go. And I I think those lists are great. I think you should look at those lists and read them, and I'm not going to bother making you one, because I think they're, they're very personal, and they depend on a lot of things. 
But the bottom line is that you should go do van life when you can. And if that gives you pause, then maybe you're not ready for van life. You are going to run out of tomorrows. It happens to everybody and some sooner than later. And if you have an opportunity to do something, then my personal belief is that you probably should do it if it's something you really want to do. And if you have an opportunity to do something and you're not immediately motivated to jump right on it, then how do you know you really want to do it? Now, I remember several times in my youth that my parents were concerned that I was impulsive. <laughs> I wonder why. And they would try to slow me down, you know, and I, I've told the story before, but very briefly, we went to Disney World in 1976, and one of the things I really wanted to do was ride the little speedboats in the lake, because I'd never done anything like that before. And the first thing I wanted to do was go ride the speedboats. We had an afternoon that we weren't going to the parks, and the speedboats are right there. And, I'm like, and my parents, being good parents, were like, well, let's not do everything at once. Why don't we save that for the end? And that can be the last thing we do before we go home. And this was good advice generally, and I was okay with it. I was a little disappointed, but you know, I was a kid. And uh, okay, so we went and did the parks and had a great time. And then Hurricane David came and they closed the park down and I did not get to ride those speedboats. And I did eventually get to ride them, but at that point I was much older and my body weight basically made it so I was the slowest boat on the lake because, you know, they're not huge. I think it was a nine horsepower engine on the thing. So that taught me a lesson that while you don't want to rush into everything, you don't want to be, you know, a hedonist and just grab everything as soon as you can, you also have to understand that those opportunities will not be there forever. So what are the things that might stop you from doing van life? Well, money is definitely one. I mean, I know people just get in their van and go and hope for the best. And some people have to do that. And I'm totally understanding of that. But it's probably a good idea to have money in the bank, at least enough to get by for a while and, and to have a plan to sustain yourself. Those are good things to have. Health is important. If you have serious health problems and you're in a situation where you're getting care of some sort, that might not be the best time to do van life. And of course, if you don't have a van or some other vehicle you can use, you do want to have a reliable vehicle. That is an important thing. And yeah, you can do it in just about anything, but uh, I can tell you that you can spend $20,000 on a van and not get a reliable van. Ask me how I know this. So consider those things when it's time to go. I am not a big trust your gut person. I'm much more evidence-based than feelings-based, but I do recognize that some of your gut is actually based on evidence that's in the pre-conscious state that you haven't actually realized yet. <laughs> We're not gonna have a little psychology discussion here, but you will know when it's time to go when your gut says it's time to go. And then I'm going to encourage you to go. Okay, so let's say you're in your mid-20s and you're supposed to be working on your career, but you have a chance to go do van life. Should you do it? Well, only you can decide. I'm going to tell you that it's going to be much easier to do it in your mid-20s than in your mid-30s or mid-40s. I mean, there's almost like a curve, you know? After you get out of college or high school or you stop going to school or whatever you do when you get into your 20s, you kind of have this golden window 
or most people, I'm not, I'm speaking generally, um, of few obligations. And because of that, that's the time you get to go hike across Europe or go join the military or go do van life. There's a limited window of time to do that. And then when most people get in their 30s, responsibilities start adding up. They've got a real job now that they have to tend to. Maybe they have kids, that kind of a thing. And then as you get into your 40s, that just compounds. And then suddenly in your 50s, your kids maybe have gone, but then your parents are starting to get older and you have to do stuff with them. And then you might get a chance to give up on responsibilities in your 60s and 70s, but then your health is a concern. And yeah, I mean, I'm just kind of going over the same point over and over again here, but the point is you're ready to do van life when you can do it. That's when you're ready. That's, that's it. That's the whole test. Can I do van life? Yes. Do I want to do van life? Yes. Time to hit the road. Out you go. And if you feel like that's irresponsible or people are telling you, why don't you wait on this idea a bit? Just remember that that moment you have when this is available to you isn't going to last forever. So I am not going to push anybody in any direction other than to say, consider all these things and make your own decision. But do van life when you can, if you can, because you won't always be able to. TikTok. Oh, so last week I did the stuff I was wrong about. I could have added this, actually. Uh, I, I, again, I was a big 12-volt advocate, right? It was like, you make your whole van 12-volt. Don't use an inverter. You know, it wastes energy, blah, blah, blah. And, and I believe that that's true still to a, a, a large extent. But there are times when using 110 volts actually makes more sense than using 12 volts. And I think I've identified one. Now, I reviewed a while ago a 12-volt kettle that I've used in my van since I started this van life thing, and it, it works fine when it doesn't melt the socket. <laughs> anything that heats anything electrically is going to draw an incredible amount of power, and a kettle, an electric kettle that heats water, is not an exception at all. And what I found with my kettle over repeated use was that the cigarette lighter plug would literally melt the socket and destroy it. And I'm talking the high quality sockets that are made out of a ceramic material. The kettle would destroy them. And, uh, you know, a fuse would blow eventually. There wasn't any danger of fire, but it would melt the thing enough that I couldn't use it anymore. And so I got to thinking, all right, what's the solution for this? Now I could cut off the plug and use an Anderson plug or something like that, make a more firm connection because those cigarette lighter plugs are kind of crap. But then I thought, well, wait a minute. If I have enough battery capacity to make toast with an electric toaster, which I do, I'll bet I have enough battery capacity to make hot water that way too. And then I thought, well, what if I just used the inverter and had a 110 volt kettle? And you know, I think it makes sense. The reason is that an electric kettle is going to use the same wattage whether it's 12 volts or 110 volts. Remember that watts is volts times amps. So if you raise one, we're gonna raise the voltage from 12 to 110, you lower the other. And amps is what melts things. <laughs> so if you can raise the voltage and lower the amps, you end up with less resistance and that means less melting of things. So if I bought a normal over-the-counter 110 volt electric kettle and plugged it into the electrical outlet and then turned on the inverter, 
yes, it's not as efficient. I'm probably losing 10 to 20% of my battery power for the time it's running, doing that over 12 volts. But it's not going to damage anything. And I think the problem with the electric kettle is that it's maxing out the rating of the socket at 12 volts. And even for a cigarette lighter that only is in there for 20 seconds or so, it's running for five minutes and it's just too much for it. So if you are a tea drinker and want an electric kettle or you just want an electric kettle and you have a, a good inverter, 2000 watts or above, a 110 volt kettle is probably going to be better than a 12 volt kettle. Product review. This is this is this is great. This is something one of these things I found that I'm actually kind of excited about and that's a little pathetic because it is Striker bath towels. <laughs> Let me back up a little bit here. Striker with a Y, Striker, is a well-known brand in the medical industry. And at the beginning of this year, my wife was hospitalized for a few weeks, and she's fine now. But uh, she was kind of bedridden for a while. They didn't want her walking around a lot, and they certainly didn't want her taking showers. So they gave her these. Then I'm holding it up for the people on YouTube, but the uh, <laughs> the podcast people can listen to the package. Yeah. Now, th those aren't chips. I'm sorry. No, these are Sage, but they're made by Stryker. Sage Essential Bath Hygienic Full Body Washcloths. Now, anybody who's done van life for any amount of time knows the wonder of baby wipes, okay? And if you listen, listen to Bob Wells, he'll tell you that the cheap brand at Walmart is the best baby wipe, and I don't disagree. Those are good baby wipes. But these are a whole other level. These things are a lot stronger and a lot bigger and do a lot better job cleaning than baby wipes because they're not baby wipes. These things are designed to replace a shower or a bath, as the case may be. And I took them from the hospital, you know, after my wife was sent out, we had two packages of these. We paid for them, probably $100 a package or something. So I had no problem taking them home. And I put them in my van and I have been using them as, you know, times when I'm out without the ability to have a shower or if it's early and I just want to clean up a bit. And they're so much better than baby wipes. No more of this, the baby wipe rolling up on your fingers or if you have the really cheap one that's falling apart, none of that. These are so much better, but they're a little weird. <laughs> so like I said, they're bigger and they're wet and they come in scented and unscented. And I haven't tested whether the unscented ones, you know, help with mosquitoes or anything like that. The scent is very mild and I don't have a problem with it, but the instructions on here, well, first off, they tell you, you should put it in the microwave before you use it, which is something I hadn't actually thought of, but boy, that makes sense. If you have a way to microwave your wipes or these, well, why not? <laughs> then you can have a nice warm <laughs> shower with your rear wipes. So that's a good idea. Now, the other thing in the instructions is, and this is something I disagree with, is they want you to use the whole package. So there are eight wipes in a package, and they want you to use one for one arm, one for another arm. Basically, every appendage gets a wipe, and then you throw it away. Now, in a medical situation, Maybe that makes sense, but uh, in van life, I think you can do most of it with one or two wipes, generally. Uh, I, I wouldn't worry about using all eight. And there's a drawback to these that I definitely want to pull out. Some wipes that you buy are biodegradable. Some of them are even flushable. You have to look at the package. And, you know, I know there's controversy about flushing any kinds of wipes, and I, I get it. I'm not getting into that right now. These have to go in the trash. 
They have to because of what they're made out of. And, and it's what they're made out of that makes them so much better. These are made out of two things. Cellulose, which is paper, and polyester. Yeah, it's a mixture of cellulose and polyester. Now, polyester is another word for plastic. So, yeah, you can't throw these in a campfire. At least you shouldn't. You can't compost them. You shouldn't flush them. It says right on here, do not flush. So you have to throw them in the trash. And I know that's going to be off-putting to folks who are super eco-conscious. So I'm throwing that out there. But that said, these are the best thing I have found for this kind of a thing. So uh, I bought these directly from Stryker because they were very expensive on Amazon. They were like five or six bucks a package on Amazon. So I actually bought a case. I bought 60 packages of these from Stryker.com and uh, I think that'll last a little while. But Anita from Facebook says she has a very similar thing that she gets at CVS. So I guess this is a product review of not only these, but look for medical washcloths that are disposable rather than just wipes. And, you know, get some wipes too, whatever. Another thing that occurs to me is if you can microwave these, you can put them in the fridge too. And, you know, you're out there, you go hiking for a while, you come back to the van and it's hot and you just want to clean up a little bit. Maybe having a cooled off one of these would actually be pretty nice. So I'm going to open this package and uh, show you what's in here. So, oh. So you see it opens just like a normal package of wipes and down at the bottom there it has the you know don't flush thing and this is geez that's sticky <laughs> i guess that's good you want it to be sticky right okay and then i pull out the wipe and even the package has plastic in it i mean it's it's wrapped in plastic you know so these are not eco-friendly i mean it's meant for a hospital but this is the wipe. Um, I, I know, I know folks on the podcast can't see this, but YouTube people, um, this is the wipe. And it is about the size of a 10-inch paper napkin. It's square. And uh, it's just very, very tough. You know, it really feels like cloth. It feels like a washcloth. And uh, it's just so much more pleasant, you know. I, I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> enough i love these things i bought a whole bunch of them i'll have a link in the show notes but you might be able to find similar at cvs or walgreens or wherever you get your weird cleaning supplies tales from the road so last week i talked about a, an incident in haiti and uh it this might be a little strong, but it seemed to rub some folks the wrong way. Not everybody, but some folks. And and they, their complaint was basically that I suggested that religious groups going into disaster areas weren't doing anything. And that's unfortunate because it's not true. <laughs> and I don't believe that. While I have had some pretty unpleasant run-ins with some religious groups in certain disaster areas, that is true. I also have had some very, very good experiences. And I thought I would share some of those with you. One time was in Houghton, Michigan. Houghton, Michigan is way up in the Upper Peninsula. In fact, from Chicago, it feels like it's in Wisconsin because you have to drive through the entire state of Wisconsin to get there. But it's actually in Michigan. The mining college is there, and it's a college town. It's very nice. And they had a flash flood. It was a very strange weather event that really did a lot of damage in the town. This was back in 2018, I believe. And so I was volunteering with Team Rubicon at the time, and we got called up, and they asked us all to go, and 
I had to drive the trailer up, and we all gathered up there, and we rolled into town. There were maybe 20 of us. We had all our gear, and we're ready to help out. And the college, since it was in the summer, the college offered to put us up in the dorms, so we stayed in the dorms. But um, there was a problem with food, because the town was having their own problems. And while we can bring MREs and stuff like that, we'd rather not. <laughs> MREs get old very quickly. And as has happened in just about every disaster area I have been in, a local church said, oh, we'll feed everybody. And that's it. They just do it. And we went to this church up on the hill and it was seven o'clock in the morning and the church ladies, as they called themselves, got up early in the morning and made us fabulous breakfast every day we were up there. And this is just one tiny example of religious organizations doing good during disasters. That's a very, very common story. I'll actually tell the rest of the Houghton story another time because it was an interesting, interesting op. Uh, other examples, uh, I was in Missoula, Montana for flooding and we were actually coordinating sandbag crews and uh, we didn't have a place to stay. And boom, this church says, hey, you can stay in our place. And you know, we didn't sleep amongst the pews. They had this giant recreation hall with ping pong and Xboxes and a big snack bar and all this stuff. And they let us stay there. No questions asked. They gave us the keys and that was it. Again, this happens all the time. I am not a religious person and I do not want to bring religion or politics into this podcast. But it is interesting to note that when there is a disaster, that's where religious organizations really get a chance to shine. And while they don't all, the ones that do really make a big impact. And one organization that I can't thank enough for their work in disaster areas is the Salvation Army. I understand they're controversial. I know they've done some things in the past that I don't approve of. I know they have a very strange structure and they're somewhat opaque. I understand all of that. All I'm saying is, at every disaster I've been at that's been of a decent size, Salvation Army has been there giving out food or blankets or whatever is needed, and they don't say a thing other than, here you go, I hope you have a better day. They don't proselytize. They're not trying to spread the word of God or anything like that. They're trying to get need to the people who need it the most. And I have to respect that. So maybe I will tell those other stories about the bad experiences I've had some other time. But for now, I just want to acknowledge that religious organizations filled with good people do a lot of good in disaster areas. And in fact, they're essential. A place to visit. So remember back in the day when we had American-made cars? <laughs> and you're like, well, what do you mean? We still have American-made cars. I mean, I've got a Promaster, and that's a Ram, and that's a Dodge, and that's owned by Chrysler, which is owned by Stellantis, which is an Italian company. Uh, all right, never mind. I've got a Ford F-150, and it was made in Mexico. And yeah, the, the whole concept of American-made cars, is it just isn't really a thing anymore. Cars are made all over the place, and Subarus, if you're in the U.S. and you have a Subaru, which is clearly a Japanese car, except that it was probably made in Indiana. <laughs> Indiana is where they make Subarus for the U.S. market, and probably Canada, too. If you think about it, 
they're not making the same cars in Japan as they are for here because the steering wheel's on the other side, right? So instead of building them in Japan and shipping them over here, which they do, I mean, my 1998 Subaru Forester was actually built in Japan. They build a lot of them in Indiana. And you can go watch them do it. And that's why this is a place to visit. Subaru, actually the company is called SIA, Subaru Indiana Automotive, <laughs> Shaw. They have tours at their factory. Now they're in Lafayette, Indiana, which isn't too far from Indianapolis. It's, it's west of Indianapolis. And you can just show up and they have a tour. Now their tours are a little specific. You have to be careful when you go there. You have to make sure they're having a tour that day and you have to make sure you're dressed properly we'll talk about that in a sec but what you're going to see is an assembly line and lots and lots of robots now i have not toured this particular car plant but i have toured a few others and it's fascinating you know that the car you have was put together but you may not really know how and you start to see that it's very clever in how they do it everything is built in modules that are plugged into each other and now when they build cars they actually have to think about recycling like how do we remove the plastic from the metal and things like that so you'll see all this stuff and they'll explain the whole process and it's it's a lot of fun it can be a bit loud and again you have to be careful how you're dressed like they don't allow dresses in the summer, you can wear shorts, no open-toed shoes, no flip-flops, no Tevas, nothing like that. You have to be able to do stairs and to walk fairly quickly. And sadly, you're not allowed to take pictures, uh, so no cell phones. They give you a locker when you get in, you put all your stuff in there and you can just go through. And I'm always disappointed when they don't let you take pictures. But, you know, I understand that there's, you know, one of the reasons you can't take pictures in factories has nothing to do with security or stealing secrets or anything. It has to do with OSHA. <laughs> because <laughs> OSHA's watching. And if you happen to take a picture of that one worker who doesn't have his hard hat on at the right time, OSHA can come after them and they're not willing to be exposed to that. I, I know this for a fact because it's happened in situations that I've been involved in. So basically you just show up Monday, Wednesday, or Friday at 11 a.m. They have a tour, but definitely check it out first because things change. If they're changing out equipment to build a new model or whatever, they're not going to have the tour. So, hey, it's Subaru of Indiana Automotive. It's an old-fashioned factory tour, which used to be a great, fun thing to do on summer vacations. That's getting kind of rare these days, and it's free. Resource recommendation. So this once was a great resource and it's just an okay resource now but it's okay enough for me to spread out to the masses <laughs> when i was a kid going on factory tours was a great summer thing to do we used to do it all the time we went to pretzel factories uh build-a-bear factories i've been to cheese factories bottling factories beer factories so many different factories i've been to and i've loved each one i, I just think it's a really fun thing to do and a lot of them have stopped liability reasons whatever terrorism i mean 9-11 caused a lot of this stuff to be shut down but there are still some out there, and a place where you can find them is at this website called factorytoursusa.com. And it's just an old-school HTML, very simple listing of all the factory tours available in the entire country. You get a map of the U.S. and, sorry, Canada, and you click on the state and it lists all the places and then you can click in and see more and more. And it's great. There's all these factories I've never heard of on here and I'm going to go through this list now every time I go to a new state. And 
why am I not recommending this wholeheartedly? Well, it's because I don't think this site has been updated since the early 2000s. <laughs> Some of the factories listed here are for brands that no longer exist. So I'm going to guess the last time the site was updated was in 2005. So what that means for you is you have a list of factories that's still good, but you have to do your homework as to whether they still have tours or they even still exist. <laughs> so I did a spot check of ones in Ohio and about 60% of them were still in business. So I, yeah, again, this is, this is an imperfect resource, but it's a resource nonetheless. And maybe you don't like factory tours. I don't know, but all I, I like them as a curious person, as somebody who likes to watch how it's made, <laughs> Factory tours are a lot of fun, and sometimes you get free samples as well, too. So, you know, what's not to love about that? URL is factorytoursusa.com. I'll have a link in the show notes, of course. And definitely, definitely be sure to double-check that they're still there before you spend time traveling there. Well, folks, thank you very much for listening to episode 177. Woohoo! I don't, I don't know why I'm excited about that. It's, it's just a number. But hey, music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. If you'd like to get a hold of me for any reason, I am Jeff at builttogo.com. That's two T's, not three, not one. And if you'd like to help support this program, visit buymeacoffee.com slash builttogo. And I thank you very much for that. Until next time, remember the words of Benjamin Disraeli, who said... One secret of success in life is for a man to be ready for his opportunity when it comes. <laughs>